which is highly esteemed among men, is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity that your word sheds upon our minds and understanding. Thank you for the glorious teaching of Jesus recorded here for our benefit. I pray for all the souls that are in this room. First of all, for those who are still presently lost those who are maybe rich towards this world, but very poor towards You. I pray that You would flip that around before it's too late. pray that You would grant them eyes to see and a heart to believe, ears to hear. pray that Your truth would, be, would sink down deep into their hearts and that the Holy Spirit would grant new life today to some in this place. I also pray for those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Those who have been converted, have been made new creatures, that You would encourage us and challenge us with the great responsibility of the ministry of reconciliation, that we find this a tremendous privilege to speak Your truth to others. Lord, sometimes that comes in the form of a sermon like this on a Sunday morning, but oftentimes it takes the form of just conversations day in, day out with people around us. And so, make us prepared witnesses People who are ready to proclaim the wondrous reconciliation that is possible in and through Jesus Christ and in and through Him alone. 
May He be glorified. May He be exalted. May His name be lifted up. And may You draw men unto Him. We pray this in His name. Amen. One of my absolute favorite classes that I took while in high school was a drafting class. I got to take it as an elective. And the class was a combination of learning some computer-aided drafting and design on computers, as well as some old-school pencil, paper, and straight-edge work. A major project that we were assigned was to construct and first design and then draw and then construct our own balsa wood bridge that was supposed to sit over a certain distance and hold a certain load. The competition was to see which student ultimately could hold the most weight by their bridge spanning that distance with the materials that were granted. Now, I fared quite well in that contest due to my realization that there was no award for sparing any materials. So my task from the very beginning was I'm going to use every single stick of this balsa wood and I'm going to use every drop of glue. So after all the other students finished their thing and they just sat there for a week or two, every day I came into class and I re-glued every single joint. I started laminating all the boards. I just The whole thing was I used every single drop of glue, every piece of balsa wood that was provided to me. And by the time the testing of bridges had come, the teacher, I can remember getting to my bridge and putting the bucket below it and starting to pour water in as he had done with all the rest and the bucket filled up with water. Decided they had to pour out that, started putting weights into the bucket and started pouring in water. And eventually, sure enough, the bridge did give way and crumbled under the pressure. But that was a great day. That was a really great day. Well, I would find myself not very many years after that in a civil engineering class at Texas A&M University. And all of the students in my class were given a real-world bridge problem. We were provided with a set amount of money, and we were given dimensions for a certain bridge situation. Our assignment was to select the right material to support a given load, and then meanwhile stay within budgetary guidelines and do some design work and stuff. And again, I felt like I was back doing something back in high school, just on a little bit up level, having done some of the work of um, stresses and tensions on bridges in that class. But whether in class or in real life, bridges have always fascinated me. There are certainly times when I take their presence for granted. Maybe you have as well. But then there are times when I'm just struck by the incredible fashion in which bridges are used today to connect points that are otherwise separated. I'm sure many of you, even on your trip in this morning to church, probably many of you passed over at least one bridge on your way here this morning Our modern interstates contain elaborate systems and networks of bridges and overpasses. You can do a little search on the Internet and quickly look at pictures of of bridges from all over the world. All of them serve to provide passage over some sort of physical obstacle, either a body of water or a valley or a road. Bridges are greatly diverse in their design. That design is varied depending upon the function of the bridge, the nature of the terrain that the bridge is found in, the materials that are used to make the bridge, the funds that are available to build the bridge. But if I was to play a little quick word association game with you and I said bridge, what comes to your mind? Nobody wants to come out there and say something, but the thing that comes to my mind first is Golden Gate. I think of the Golden Gate Bridge a very distinctive suspension bridge located in San Francisco. It was built in 1937 
And it spans over 4,200 feet. That's three quarters of a mile. It's possibly the most beautiful bridge in existence. It's certainly the most photographed bridge around. But it's not the longest bridge of its type. Enjoyed the title of longest bridge for 27 years until in 1964, a bridge was constructed in Brooklyn and Staten Island in New York. And this bridge is a double-decker suspension bridge able to transport 12 lanes of traffic across it at once. That bridge outdid the Golden Gate by 40 or 50 feet. But even that bridge is not the longest suspension bridge today. In 1998, the Japanese built a bridge that spans 6,532 feet. That's over about one and a quarter miles long. But that's just suspension bridges. There are arch bridges, cantilever bridges, cable-stayed bridges, beam bridges. The last type includes the longest bridges in the world. Um, actually, right here in Louisiana, our neighbor, the Lake uh, Pontchartrain Causeway spans nearly 24 miles and uses 9,500 concrete pilings. It's the longest overwater conti- contiguous bridge in the world for automobiles. But in China in 2011, if we move away from cars to high-speed rail, there's a bridge that was built in China, completed in 2010, opened 2011, that spans over 100 miles. The bridge cost $8.5 billion. It took 10,000 workers four years to complete that bridge. Now, that brief survey manifests some of the wonder of modern human engineering. These bridges are wonders to behold. They not only practically serve humanity by greatly reducing the time that it takes to travel and to engage in commerce, but they're oftentimes very beautiful as well. They're beautiful edifices to human ingenuity and human creativity. There's great satisfaction also that comes from a completed bridge. The idea of making connections between two distant places. Men spend great effort and money in bringing together estranged places. And bridges have been successful in bringing groups of people together. And yet, no matter how much infrastructure we build, there remain separations which we are unable to reconcile. There are chasms that we cannot bridge. There are rivalries that persist in this world. There are conflicts and divides which we are powerless to bring peace to. We may be able to build a physical bridge between two groups of people, but that will in no way fix the problems that lay within the human heart, causing men to be estranged from one another and from the God who made us. For this, we need help from above. We need God to build a bridge where we cannot. And thankfully, He has done just that. But it's a very specific bridge. Not just any bridge would do. And that bridge is open for a limited time. It's not open forever. So we need to make haste to do two things. Number one, these are my two points. Number one, repent of trusting in bridges made by men. Repent of trusting in bridges made by men. And number two, believe in the bridge provided by God. Repent of trusting in bridges made by men, number one. And number two, believe in the bridge provided by God. This is in a sermon entitled Bridge 
building. First, I would like to lead us to repent of trusting in man-made bridges. Repent of trusting in bridges made by men. Obviously, here I am speaking of that spiritually uh, constructed bridge made by men. I'm not saying you can't go over any physical bridges. What I am saying is let us repent of trusting in man-made spiritual bridges. But you know, that's man's kind of disposition. His natural bent in a sinful fallen world is to build his own bridge, to attempt to justify himself before God. Let's quickly review some of the events leading up to this passage in Luke 16, verse 14. Jesus has just finished telling several parables to a mixed audience of tax collectors and sinners and disciples and Pharisees. He told three parables dealing with the joy that accompanies the rescue of lost sinners who are granted repentance. Remember in the parable of the prodigal son, we noted that Jesus' message was just as much for the older brother as it was for the younger. For he too, the older brother, was more interested in his father's stuff than he was in delighting himself in his father and being rightly related to his brother. Then Jesus told his disciples the parable of the unrighteous steward, with the driving point being that his disciples ought to see money as a resource to be spent towards the salvation of souls. They ought to use unrighteous mammon in securing everlasting friends. You won't bring any money from this earth with you, but what you can do is invest that money to make friends that will greet you into eternal dwellings. Faithfulness with earthly riches is a proving ground to see if our hearts are set right upon the priorities that the Lord is pleased with. Because you see, ultimately our use of money just demonstrates where our heart really is. Jesus says there is no serving two masters. Either you will use money in service to God to advance his kingdom, or you will use God as a means to get money. One master will rule your life. Only God deserves that place. It's the same theme that then pushes forward another illustration from Jesus. We're told in Luke 16, 14, now the Pharisees, who were money lovers, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. The Pharisees reject Jesus' words and they resort to ridicule. This is not an uncommon thing um, among unbelievers. Sinful man will often try to sidestep the sharp edge of God's word by either deflecting it or redirecting it. And here we see the Pharisees caught up in a sort of mockery and Jesting and laughing at Jesus. We too often try to laugh when we're corrected. That laugh is kind of distinctive though, isn't it? It's one of those nervous laughs. As they knew that they were under the gun, but they didn't want to admit that they actually had an issue with the very thing that Jesus was declaring. It's interesting that reproof of the wicked doesn't help them, but the wise are trained by it and benefited greatly. In this respect, the Pharisees fit the description of the fools given in the book of Proverbs. We're told that a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. One who has understanding receives correction. The one who is a fool does not. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove, reprove a wise man and he will love you. You know, if the scoffer hates you for the reproof, the wise man loves you for the reproof. 
we see where these Pharisees are. These religious leaders felt themselves above Jesus' warnings. When they should have been humbled and broken, instead they're arrogant and proud. And they're treating Jesus' words with flippancy and irreverence. But what are the marks of a money lover? I mean, we're told that they're money lovers. Well, what, how do you know if that's you? How do we know if that's us? I think Philip Ryken provides a couple of good tests. I just want to throw these out there quickly. I think these are useful in examining our hearts before the Lord. What are some marks of being a money lover? Well, here's a couple. If we're anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs today and tomorrow, we're wrongly looking to money to provide us with security. It has too tight of a hold and grip on our hearts and minds. Another one. When we find our thoughts consumed with something that we're hoping to buy, our minds are continually consumed with getting things. We're in love with money and its power to get us the things we want. Here's another one. When we make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise for ourselves and our families, we're in love with money and our plans for getting more of it. Another When we spend more time complaining about what we do not have than rejoicing in what we do have, we're in love with money and depend on our possessions rather than on God to give us contentment and joy. Here's the last one. When it seems difficult or even impossible to give up something we want in order to give a full biblical tithe or to make a sacrificial gift to Christian work, we're more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to change the world. These are examining scenarios and situations. And I'm sure all of us can identify with the pull, the tug that money can have on our hearts. These Pharisees were completely given over to a love of money. So Jesus turns his gaze yet again to the Pharisees. Now please note that while Jesus' words here to the Pharisees are hard, they're also lovingly true. The warning that Jesus is offering here to the religious leaders is something that the Pharisees would do well to heed. So Jesus will start with some straightforward statements, and then he's going to back it up with an illustrative case, which we'll look at in just a moment. First of all, he exposes these Pharisees. He says to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You justify yourselves in the sight of men. You try to build your own bridges in the sight of men. Yet God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You see, the Pharisees had a mistaken goal. They wanted to make themselves appear holy before men. And one of the ways they did this was to segregate themselves away from those whom they considered to be the lowlifes of society. They wouldn't make association with the outwardly um, unclean. They made sure that their associations were with the wealthy and the well-to-do. And from this, they gained for themselves entrance into extravagant earthly homes. But God saw right through their thin veneer of self-righteousness, right to their hearts. He knew what dwelled there. There was no way that they could cover it up. It was exposed, laid bare before God's vision. And as in Isaiah's day, so these religious leaders were exposed to God's gaze. And he described those people in Isaiah's day as those who draw near to him with their words and honor honor him with their lip service. But their hearts are far away from him. Their reverence for him consisting of tradition learned by Wrote. You see, that hypocrisy that was found within the religious leaders might have been very effective at tricking men, but it did not trick God. In fact, Jesus even provides a good litmus test. 
He says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You be sure of this. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. This world system stands opposed to the Lord. So if a fallen world grants you unreserved accolades of praise, be concerned. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. If there is no persecution, be concerned. If everyone unreservedly praises you for your actions and your activities and your beliefs and your behaviors, be concerned. Now look down at Jesus' illustration of this principle, starting in verse 19. Now there's debate about this story, about whether or not it should be seen as a parable or an illustrative example or factual history. Is Jesus, in other words, just telling a pithy story that isn't actually rooted in historical events, or is he recounting actual historical events that have taken place? It's not specifically called a parable, and it carries a distinctive mark that's not found in the rest of the parables. That is, that a character is given a specific name. We see Lazarus. We see that name present. As a result, many regard this as an actual historical fact, not just a parable. The story reads much like other parables that Jesus taught. Therefore, I kind of agree with John Calvin, who said, I rather consider it to be the narrative of an actual fact, but that is of little consequence, provided the reader comprehends the doctrine which it contains. agree with his statement. One of the problems that has happened with some is that they'll just discount everything that's found here because they'll say, well, it's just a parable. And that would be wrong. Jesus' parables had something to say. Symbolic language has some meaning. We can't just expunge all meaning from it, even if we were to determine that this is a parable. Again, the point is up for grabs. Who knows if it's a parable or an actual historical event, but regardless, we need to grapple with the doctrine that's being taught here. Jesus introduces to us a certain rich man. He wore purple clothing, we're told, and he had fine linen. In other words, this guy was dressed like royalty. He wore the finest undergarments, and he had expensive clothing upon his back. He lived his days in extravagant merriment. Feasting was common to his everyday experience. He lived in a sort of mansion. We're told that Lazarus, in the account, is thrown at the gate of this man's house. So, this isn't any little shack. This guy had some substantial grounds to his property, and Lazarus is thrown at the gate told that Lazarus is hoping that even that the scraps from the rich man's decadence might somehow find their way to him. There are many commentators who have noted that perhaps the scraps that are being referred to here is a common practice. You know, they didn't have moist toilettes back then. They didn't have little wet wipes. So it was often practiced that they would take a little piece of bread after they were done and they would wipe out dishes and wipe off their hands with a piece of bread. So perhaps he's even hoping for that kind of discarded piece of bread to be thrown his way, the sorts of things, the scraps that the mongrels, the dogs in the city would eat. Well, Lazarus is said merely to die. We're told that the rich man, when he dies, he's buried. Interesting. Lazarus says he's died and the angels take him to Abraham's bosom. But with the rich man, we're told that he died and was buried. Presumably, Lazarus didn't even have a funeral. The rich man's funeral, if it was anything like the rest of his life, was probably full of decadence. Yet God sees through all of the extravagant displays of wealth to the heart of this man. 
All this man's concern for his own comforts and lack of care for others manifests that his life was actually a wasted life. A lesson in squandered resources. All of it ultimately depicting a heart that was intent on money rather than on God. Therefore, ultimately, this man is assigned a place in Hades and beset with everlasting torment. Now, this result, I, I, don't, don't let this be wasted on us, would have been completely unexpected. For, to the typical Jewish leader's mind, wealth was associated with God's blessing. So one who was wealthy must have favor with God, right? I mean, this is the theology of Job's friends, right? You must have done something wrong because all of your wealth has been stripped from you and all these hardships have come upon you. It's very in vogue to believe that if you see amounts of worldly success and prosperity, that that must mean that God is pleased. By the way, this sort of philosophy is still alive and well today, isn't it? There are many people that believe, I must be doing something right because look how much money I have. The church must be doing what's right because look how many people are coming. Many that gauge success along these lines. This Pharisee's action is really sinful man's default position. We're all attempting to build a bridge for ourselves, a means to overcome our unrighteousness, an effort to secure our own future and to rest on our own accomplishments. But it's all an effort and futility. You see, the Pharisees fell into the trap of believing that money was a sign of God's favor and proved that they must be godly. They saw financial prosperity as a confirmation of their spiritual success. But Jesus exposes the fallacy of that line of thinking when he says, he died and was buried in Hades. This man looks up in Hades, in the midst of agony. Now, it would be equally false to believe that physical poverty guarantees someone to be on right terms with God as well, right? I mean, we can flip this around the other way and say, well, let's just all live as monks. Let's live ascetic lives. Let's do away with all property and possessions. That will secure us a place in heaven. That also can be your own attempt at building your own bridge to heaven through your works. None of it works. However, prosperity is oftentimes a much greater hindrance to men's souls than poverty. I mean, Jesus warns about this often. He warns in the parable of the sower. The seed that's sown among the thorns is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, listen, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You see, the deceitfulness of wealth can choke the word and it not become fruitful. Matthew 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Again, your status here, whether you have lots or little, in and of itself, doesn't guarantee you any place in heaven. But there are attendant dangers to those who have lots. There's a deceitfulness to wealth. There's, the, there's a greater tendency of those who have lots to depend upon the lots that they have rather than depend upon God, the giver of all good things. This is why Job is such a brilliant example of the sort of heart and attitude we ought to have, right? The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was a man who was rich. 
And even after his testing, the Lord blesses him again with earthly riches. But we can see that his heart isn't stayed by riches, earthly things. But his heart is dedicated to the Lord. Remember, this is another thing to remember, Abraham himself was a wealthy man. And where does Lazarus go? To Abraham's bosom, the chest of Abraham. That's where he's found after he dies. So it's not about what one has or doesn't have. That's ultimately the determining factor. But what one does with what one has been given and how one responds to what God has chosen to withhold. There's your tests. What are you doing with what God has given you? And secondly, what are you doing with the things that God has chosen not to give to you? In other words, what is your attitude towards the lacks? Is our relationship with God that is determinative? Possessions are merely the proving grounds of the heart. Man attempts to build his own bridges, though. He attempts to secure his own future. To rest on his own deeds. To rest on his own possessions. Man's ongoing attempt is then to make excuses. (laughs) To shift blame away from oneself. Because inevitably, this is what happens with the legalist. The legalist says, okay, I'm going to earn my way to heaven through a system of steps, through a system of good works. But inevitably, he has to come to a point where he goes, I haven't kept all these things. I mean, I haven't actually kept the very things that I'm talking about here. I mean, the truth is, we transgress our own standards, much less God's perfect standard. I mean, just think about it this way. If God was to merely judge us on the basis of the judgment that we have made against other people, that alone, just the way we have judged other people, if you to take that standard and judge us with it, would any of us pass? Have you ever caught yourself before finding places where you've judged down someone else and really, in reality, if you just turned it around, you realize that you transgressed the very thing that you're judging someone else for? This is the problem for the legalist. He wants to earn his way to heaven. He wants to build his own bridge to heaven. But there, when he takes a good look at what he's doing, he realizes quickly that he can't feel very comfortable in his legalism. So how does he make, com- make it more comfortable? Well, he starts to cut out for himself a wide girth. He provides himself with a lot of exception clauses. Reasons why he should be excused in this matter or that matter. Reasons why in this particular case, God shouldn't really hold his feet to the fire. Because, well, we had all these circumstances. How often do we do this? I mean, it goes right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam, uh, Lord, it's the woman whom you gave to me. You're to blame and she's to blame. It's not me. Religious leaders were engaged in this and Jesus found it particularly vile. They tied up heavy burdens for others, but meanwhile themselves were unwilling to bear any of that burden. They knew all the loopholes. <laughs> they knew all the exceptions. And meanwhile, they imposed strict censures on everyone else who failed to come up to the standard that they had set. This is why when Jesus says things like, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, the common person would be like, what? How on earth is that possible? You see, Jesus is indicating here that he understands where the Pharisees' heart is. He sees past their thin veneer of self-righteousness to their heart. He sees their pride, their arrogance. Their dependence upon themselves. Their failure to repent. To recognize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. This is why in verse 17 Jesus explains, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. What he's doing here is he's heightening 
the responsibility that men had before the law. He's saying, you can't just make excuses. You can't just wiggle your way around what the law has said. We don't do anyone any service by lightening God's standard. Understand that? What men need to have happen is the full weight of God's law to fall upon them and break them. That they would be laid broken and bare and stripped before God. That they would see their nakedness. That they would see their unrighteousness. And from that place, a place of spiritual poverty where they now are in a place to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and love from God. Jesus says not even one stroke of one letter from the law will fail. Probably not many of us are familiar with the Hebrew alphabet, so let me kind of describe it this way. He's describing this in the sort of way that would... The distinguishing mark between a capital F and a capital E. What do you have? One little horizontal line at the bottom of that F makes it now into a E, right? There are a couple of Hebrew letters where it looks like almost like an R to us. And one of them is a resh, an R, and one's a dalit. And the dalit has just a tiniest little bit of overlap to one side. It's not even like a T. It's just like a tiny little bit of overlap. Jesus says not even one little stroke of one letter will pass away from the law. In other words, you have to keep it perfectly. How many transgressions does it take to become a transgressor? Here's a great comfort, right? How many lies does it take to be a liar? How many thefts to make you a thief? How many acts of adultery to make you an adulterer? And Jesus says, if you transgress the least of the commandments, you're guilty of them all. The problem for building your own bridge is that you are unable to build a bridge that meets your own standards, much less the divine ones. Upon inspection, every man-made spiritual bridge crumbles to the ground. It cannot bear the load. It's an act of futility. Which then leads us beautifully to verse 18. This verse has been notoriously difficult for people to understand contextually. I mean, you get what Jesus is saying there. It's pretty straightforward. But why does it appear here? Why here in this context, in the midst of this discussion? I think what Jesus is doing here is highlighting an example of how the Pharisees go wrong in their attempt to justify themselves. They had taken marriage, which is God's institution, as given in Genesis 2, and they demeaned it with the introduction of legislation which undercut God's intention. When God has put together, let no man tear asunder. Two famous rabbinical schools were arguing over justifiable means for divorce. One said if your spouse was unfaithful in case of adultery, then you could divorce. Another argued that you could do it on the basis of finding anything unseemly in one's wife. So much so, they even use the example, if she cooked you a bad meal, that would be grounds for divorce. Jesus' words show both of those views to be deficient. He upholds the sanctity of marriage vows before God by explaining marriage after divorce constitutes an act of adultery. Strong words. But the point is this. The Pharisees were experts at straining out gnats and swallowing camels. These are the ones who were tithing on the garden herbs and meanwhile missing the big picture stuff. If you're to build your own bridge to God, there will be no places for excuses. You will be judged not only by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of it. 
Not only must you not murder your brother, but you must not hate him in your heart either. Not only must you not commit adultery, but you must not lust in your heart for it either. Take your path upon man-made bridges and you'll find that they'll ultimately fail you. And there's terrible consequences, aren't there, for trusting a faulty bridge. Anybody ever seen a report or seen a video of a bridge failing? I mean, should a physical bridge fail, big consequences follow. But how much more devastating are the disastrous effects of trusting a faulty spiritual bridge? Someone believing that they've been reconciled to God on the basis of their own works, when in reality, they're not. You see, at death, the rich man's body is buried, but his soul goes to Hades. The rich man begs even for the slightest mercy in verse 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. Note how, what a reversal has happened here. Huge, ironic reversal. This rich man looking up, even in his looking up, still seems to regard Lazarus as some servant who he's pushed around. Send Lazarus to do this, Father Abraham. Note he's acquainted with this man's name. He's acquainted with Lazarus' name. The very man he didn't seek to give any help to ever lifted his own finger to help him. And meanwhile, now he's the one begging Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put it onto his tongue. No indication this rich man ever gave Lazarus so much as a crust of bread. The situation of Lazarus is so desperate, we're told that it's the dogs that are tending to him. And these aren't like, you know, oh, you know, man's best friend, wonderful dog. I mean, these are like wild mongrels and mutts. And there's Lazarus with sores all over his body, and they're licking his wounds. It shows just how desperate this man is for any amount of care. That he's receiving care from unclean animals in the midst of his misery. Meanwhile, here this... Rich man walks by him every day. He's sitting outside his gate. Doesn't lift so much as a finger for him, but now he's begging for just one drop of water to be put onto his tongue. Abraham explains the principle in place here. Verse 25. Child, remember, during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. Now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. You see, the rich man who lived in comfort and decadence and happy merriment at death was thrown to the place where he most wished not to be. He experienced pain and suffering and torment and longing and anguish forever and ever and ever and ever. Lazarus, who suffered not only from extreme poverty, but extreme pain and shame upon death, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. There he was escorted to paradise where he enjoyed comfort and rest and joy, and merriment forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. When this starts to really take hold of you, and this perspective really grips you, you'll realize that man's biggest problem is not how much money he has. It's his relationship with God. That's what's important. That's what's crucial. And it'll make an eternal distinction. The one who enjoyed worldly approval is now met with divine disapproval and judgment at death. The one whom the world despised was granted untold blessings at death. People have said death is the great equalizer. It comes for us all. 
It is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Two times we're told in this account that the rich man was in agony. Agony means conscious torment, friends. Not a cessation of feeling, not a cessation of existence, but conscious torment. This story is one of the most disturbing stories Jesus tells because it alone describes the awareness, the thoughts, the emotions and words of someone who is in torment after death. Here it is. What's it like after death for those who are not in Christ? Here it is. Here's a description of it. Here's what they're aware of. Here's what they're thinking. Here's where their emotions are. Here's the words that they would say. And everything in this narrative speaks against an annihilationist view. Those who believe that everything just ceases, that they just cease to exist at death for those who aren't in Christ. I had an opportunity to talk to a Jehovah's Witness in my house several months ago. I shared this with some of you. We spent a good three hours talking with one another, explaining where we differed with one another theologically. One of the areas that came up most notably was that they don't believe in a literal, eternal, everlasting punishment, hell. Sergio, the guy I was talking with, took exception to the doctrine of hell for three reasons. One, exegetically, he felt that the doctrine isn't in the Bible. I don't know how he got that. Number two, culturally, he believed that this doctrine leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. So we should, since it's so unpalatable, we should be done with it. And thirdly, theologically, he considered that an eternity of punishment was undefitting the finite sin that's committed by men. In other words... You've committed a certain number of sins. Now, they might be very, very vast and great, but he thought that no matter how many sins you committed, no matter how great that is, it's still finite. So how can you be given an eternal punishment? In other words, at some point, that punishment must be expended and it'd be all over for you. R.C. Sproul provides a wonderful exegetical response. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God. A prison, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die. These graphic images of eternal punishment provoke the question, should we take these descriptions literally or are they merely symbols? Sproul says, I suspect they are symbols, but I find no relief in that. We must not think of them as merely symbols. It's probable that the sinner in hell would prefer a literal lake of fire as his eternal abode, to the reality of hell represented in the lake of fire image. If these images are indeed symbols, then we must conclude that the reality is worse than the symbol suggests. The function of symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher or more intense state of actuality than the symbol itself can contain. That Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. A breath of relief is usually heard when somebody declares, Hell is a symbol for separation from God. But to be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the impenitent person. The ungodly want nothing more than to be separated from God. The problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He'll be there to exercise his just punishment of the damned. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. The scriptures are very plain about this. The reality of an everlasting, ongoing punishment. As for the cultural argument proposed by Sergio, well, helpful to acknowledge, just because the culture doesn't find it palatable, doesn't change how we tell people the truth. 
The practical implications of any particular doctrine must be judged in light of the plain testimony of Scripture. If the Scriptures declare it, we must as well. If hell does not exist, then yes, absolutely we shouldn't be declaring it. But if the Scriptures declare that there is such a place, then it would be one of the most unloving things we could do to not warn people about its reality. Our response to the practical implications of a doctrine is dependent upon the conclusions that we draw from in-depth Bible study. And if we come to these conclusions, then we must follow through with sounding the warning. Understand that hell is considered a problem not only to cult groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, but also to atheists. Atheists accuse those who believe in hell as contradicting a belief in the existence of an, of an all-powerful, all-good God. Now, how can an all-powerful, all-good God exist if there's such a place as hell? Specifically, their concern is that this fact of hell involved, involving a conscious torment visited upon the majority of the human race that is never-ending. They see that as contradictory to a loving God's existence. But the problem in all of this is their failure to have a right perspective of God and a right perspective of sin. I think once you have a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who man as a sinner is, hell becomes quite understandable. The objection that hell is a punishment that far outweighs the crime rests on a misconception about how serious sin is. Our problem is that we make sin much lighter than it really is. We want to try to make excuses for our sin. We want to try to say that it really wasn't all that big of a deal. But before a holy, omnipotent God, it is a massive deal. Humans, humans as fallen creatures can be quite comfortable with sin. We think it's not so bad as to merit eternal punishment, but such an opinion doesn't demonstrate the injustice of hell or the insignificance of sin, but our own perversity and comfort with sin. You see, perspective makes the huge difference here. If we really come to grips with the holiness of God and our sinfulness, hell will cease to appear as an unjust punishment. Randy Elkhorn says it so well. Hell is not evil. Listen, hell is not evil. It's a place where evil gets punished. Hell is not evil. It's a place where evil gets punished. It's where evil meets an all-powerful, just, holy God. That's what hell is. Hell is not evil. Hell is the expression of a holy, just God. Betting out His judgment against sin. Hell is not pleasant. It's not appealing. It's not encouraging. But hell is morally good because a good God must punish evil. Hell will not be a blot on the universe, but an eternal testimony to the ugliness of evil that will prompt wondrous appreciation of a good God's magnificence. That sounds like nonsense to those who hate hell, but it makes perfect sense to those who recognize and hate evil for what it is. Just remember, we're all sinners who deserve hell. And along those lines, remember that if we want to talk about fairness, salvation has never been a matter of fairness, has it? If God was to just be fair, purely fair, purely just, with nothing else to be considered, then we would all go to hell for all eternity and God would be right to do so. We have earned it. We, have deserve, we deserve it. The wages of sin is death. We deserve everlasting torment. Yet, God is not only just, but He's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You see, it's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of grace that any of us be saved. Unmerited favor. Remember that. Unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Therefore, God is not obligated to give it to anyone. 
Any of us who receive such a marvelous gift must be just completely in a place of ultimate gratitude. It's not a good that we can earn or deserve or be owed. Salvation is purely a matter of God's grace and mercy. So when we talk about the love and grace and mercy of God, let's not remove the fact that God is also holy and just and righteous. Verse 26 explains that the separation is unchangeably fixed. No bridge can be erected on that side of death. Abraham says, between us, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. This is Abraham's response to this rich man. He's now suffering torment, torment and agony. He says, there's no way to get between us. There's a chasm fixed and there's no bridge across there. Nobody can transfer from one place to the other. Contra those who believe that, well, in the afterlife, we'll have a second chance. There are no other chances. Your chance is now, here. You're not guaranteed any further succession of moments than the present. And once you die, your state will be crystallized and fixed forever. Perhaps it's the most frightening aspect of hell. It's eternality. It's the thought that it never ends. Even in this life, when we go through really, really difficult things, there's always the hope of, well, at some point I'll get out of this. Or even if it's excruciating pain unto death, at least the pain will be done and I'll die. And there's a lot of people that hope for death to be done with this life. But those who are not in Christ do not hope for death, dear friend. Do not hope for death. For the pain that is to be unleashed on you after death will far exceed anything you've ever experienced here on earth. It's been said before, rightly, that for those who are going to hell, this is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. But for those who are going to heaven, this is the closest you'll ever get to hell. Revelation 20.10 speaks of a lake of fire being a place where inhabitants are tormented day and night forever and ever. Mark 9 speaks about if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell. Again, the description where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25:46. The wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a great verse to bring people to. Why? Because there we have the same word, eternal, being used to describe death and life. Torment and blessing. So, if you distort the meaning of eternal in front of death and say that you're going to decease from existence, then you also have to change your definition for the word in the same sentence for the eternal life that's to come. In other words, you're going to cease from heaven, too. But you, can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't say on one hand, well, heaven's eternal and everlasting bliss and wonders and glorious before the throne of God. That will last forever and ever and ever. But hell, it will just last for a moment and it will be done. No. In the same verse, same word describing both eternal realities. There are massive consequences for trusting a faulty bridge. Way more than losing physical life is being consigned to spiritual death. The second death is the scary death. And it all arises from man's foundational problem. You know what his problem is? His refusal to heed the Word of God. His refusal to heed God's Word. 
Jesus announces in verse 16, the law and prophets were proclaimed until John, since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Jesus here is marveling at the resistance of the Pharisees. These are those who were supposed to be the supposed experts in the Old Testament. These were the legal experts. They prided themselves in knowing the Scriptures. They were, they were, but meanwhile, through all of this, they're unable to discern how all the law and prophets are pointing to Jesus. There's Jesus in front of them. Jesus says people are pressing their way in. They're suffering violence to get in. What are we thinking about here? I think of things like, you know, the, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood who's pressing through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. The friends of the paralytic who are breaking open the roof to let him down in front of Jesus. That Jesus would minister to their friend. People are pressing in. People want to see Jesus. They want to hear his words. And meanwhile, the Pharisees are mocking him. The Pharisees, the very ones who should be able to connect the dots better than anyone, are missing him. I wonder sometimes if here in America there are many people who are missing Jesus while in the midst of rich resources, the Word of God all around us, the people closing their ears, closing their eyes, hardening their hearts. These Pharisees are those who, when confronted with the plainest evidence, close their eyes, harden their hearts, even resorted to calling Jesus' miraculous works as done by the devil. So the rich man, after settling in to the fixed nature of the eternal torment, makes now a different plea to Abraham in verse 27. He says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. I have five brothers, in order that he might warn them that they won't not also come to this place of torment. Now, I want you to note with me, there's underlining this, underlying this request is the idea that something further is needed to wake people out of their spiritual stupor. This rich man in Hades hopes that Lazarus' appearance will be able to wake his family members up from their foolishness and bring them to repentance and save them from the torment that he, right then and forever, is now experiencing. But Abraham responds to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He points to the Scriptures. Now note this again. This very purposeful. Who is Jesus talking to here? A group of Pharisees who, who know Moses and the prophets. What is Jesus saying? Listen to them. Listen to them. That, that's the sufficient evidence here to point you to me. Listen to them, Abraham says. There's sufficient warning already given. Sending Lazarus would be an unnecessary act. They've already been warned. You see, through all of this, though, there's a refusal to admit what's the real problem. Rich man, again, makes a final plea. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. That's what we need. We need someone to go to them from the dead. But you see, the problem was never one of evidence. More than sufficient evidence had already been given. Jesus explains man's problem in John 3:19. This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world and the men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds or evil. This is why Abraham can boldly proclaim to the rich man in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. It's their hardness of heart that is the problem. 
And this point is made plain, all the more plain, in at least three ways. Number one, although this story, in the story itself, this warning is never issued. I was thinking about it this way. In real life, the warning is. So, if this is a real historical event or just a parable Jesus is teaching, regardless, while this rich man is being refused his request, because Jesus is teaching it, what's happening? We're getting the warning. <laughs> that warning is actually coming to us. The warning is being issued right there on that spot. The Pharisees heard this warning right from Jesus' lips, yet to no avail. In a sense, this warning came from beyond the grave and is being announced, yet unbelievers continue in their unbelief. You can wax eloquently about the reality of hell. You can speak about this very seriously and soberly. But people, if they're unbelieving and harden their hearts, will continue in that state, apart from a work of God. In John 11, Jesus raises a man by the name of Lazarus. Note that. Here's the very name of that man, and he's now being raised. Different individual, obviously, than the one that Jesus is referring to, but the same name. And when the Pharisees hear about it, they convene a council and they pose this question. Listen, what are we doing? For this man, speaking of Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Wow. What are they concerned about? If he keeps working like this, people are going to start believing him. We've got to put a stop to this. Read in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So there we go. Let's bring Lazarus back from the dead and see how, that, how people respond to that. What do they do? Even if Lazarus should come back from the dead, they'll still reject. In this case, it's eliciting even more hardness and more resolute desire to kill. And certainly our thoughts are instantly transported to Jesus Christ himself, who after being crucified and buried, rose again from the day, dead on the third day and then made res- resurrected body appearances. Yet even this fact did nothing to change the resoluteness of the Pharisees in their disbelief. In fact, remember, it's the Jewish leaders who bribed the soldiers to report that the disciples stole Jesus' body. They circulate that report that while they were sleeping, the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. See that in Matthew 28, verse 12. You see, miracles and signs do not convince blind and unrepentant hearts. If men are unconvinced by the Scriptures and the massive amount of evidences of its truthfulness seen in science and archaeology and fulfilled prophecy, we ought not be surprised that a man risen from the dead would not change their mind or heart either. Spurgeon imagined the objections coming from an unbeliever. He says, I'm not quite sure that you ever were dead, sir. You profess to be risen from the dead, but I don't believe you. So then if proof is brought that the man actually did die, then the objection comes, well, now you must prove that you were buried. And if that's proved, then it'll be said, now I want you to prove that you're identical to the man who was buried, that you and that guy are the same one. And if that be proved, the unbeliever, Spurgeon argues, will say, well, then it is not consistent with reason. It's ridiculous to suppose that a man who was dead and buried could ever come back to life again. But he's saying here's this, that they start with the presupposition that this couldn't happen. So no matter what you say, we'll never actually argue them into the position. This is typical of the way of things. Evidence is outrightly rejected because it doesn't fit presuppositions of unbelief. 
It's like the people who say there is nothing supernatural. It's just the natural world is all there is. So then you give them any explanation other than that, they'll just reject it and say that it's unreasonable. Why? Because their presupposition says that there is nothing supernatural. Daryl Bach says, if God's word is believed, a resurrection is not necessary to engender faith. It only bolsters it. If they cannot hear God's voice, they will not see his hands at work. You see, what's required is for a man's hardened heart to be replaced with a heart of flesh, for a dead man to be given life, for a man to be born again to a living hope. God the Holy Spirit must work the word into you, otherwise conscience will not awaken you, nor reason rouse you, nor appeals win you, nor persuasion bring you to Christ. God has chosen to save through the proclamation of His word, through a proclamation of the gospel. So this is where we must turn. We must repent of trusting in bridges made by men and believe in the bridge provided by God. We must believe in the bridge provided by God. There's only one bridge that is made in perfect conformity with divine standards. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness. He not only always spoke in accordance with God the Father's will, but He lived in accordance with it as well. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the law and prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. As a result, Jesus, having accomplished and fulfilled the law's demands, provided something that no one else could. We needed to be redeemed by precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless. We needed the blood of Christ. We needed a bridge that could bear up the heavy weight of our sin and take it away. The only bridge able to reconcile man and God is the one that can stand up under the load committed to it. There's only one bridge that will be able to bear sinners across to heaven. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, in order to make a bridge for us, Jesus set aside His riches in heaven. He came to earth and took on flesh. He fulfilled all righteousness. He took the wrath of God upon Himself. He was thrown outside the gates. He was stripped bare. He was beaten. He was assigned a place in the midst of dogs. And He was ridiculed. And He was scorned. People turned up their noses at Jesus and mocked Him. He experienced pain and thirst. He died and was buried. But what seemed like defeat was actually Jesus' triumph as He rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. He willingly took the lowest place that God the Father would then highly exalt Him and give Him the name above every other name. Jesus bridged the chasm for us, reconciling sinful man with holy God. His cross spans the great divide. His sinless life was the perfect sacrifice laid down on behalf of wretched sinners. The full weight of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus, who had taken upon Himself all the sin of all those who believe upon Him. And that way He bore and triumphed over sin and death. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him.
And there are wondrous rewards for trusting the true bridge, the bridge that will bear up the load. The rich man, although having every earthly privilege, being without God meant death would bring for him ultimate loss. He was stripped of every general grace of God that he was enjoying, and he was left with nothing but the righteous wrath of a holy God. While Lazarus, meanwhile, was suffering from creaturely needs, but since he had God upon death, he not only received wonderful communion with his Lord, but he received everything else besides. Lazarus was actually much richer than the rich man, is what we find out in the end. At death, we'll see who it is that has that which is truly valuable. Upon dying, we will see who has stored up true, everlasting treasure. It's interesting that the rich man's name is never recorded in this account, but the poor beggar's is. We find Lazarus' name recorded. Could it be that this is a reminder that all the big names of this world's bridge builders will one day fade into obscurity, while all the little names of those who trusted in God's provided bridge will have names that will be remembered for they've been written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, Lazarus means God helps. Praise the Lord that he does. I close with this thought, though. This bridge has been made available only for a limited time. Jesus is exceedingly plain. There will be no crossing over from one eternal state to another. Death will forever lock in your status before God. This makes the present moment so very significant. What you do with Christ now matters for eternity. Notice that the rich man instantly recognized the foolishness of his choice. Death brought to him instant clarity. But the problem is, it's too late then to reverse your destination. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's incredible to see and watch people, how they'll camp outside of stores, for good deals on products that they feel they can't live without and often are outdated or broken within a year. If shoppers on Black Friday can press through doors to the place of violence, literally, how much more ought we be pressing in on Jesus who offers us water of life without cost? It may be now or never. This might be the last time you ever hear the gospel. This might be your last moment to get on right terms with God. Once you die, the decision you have made regarding Jesus Christ becomes irrevocable and irreversible. So don't put it off. Hell has no exit. Once you check in there, you will never leave. That's the bad news. But there's good news. Just as hell is eternal, so is heaven eternal. All who check in there will never leave. And no matter who you are and what you've done, You're not yet in the position of that rich man who made petitions too late. While it's still called today, you can call upon God. You can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because He has built a bridge found in His Son, Jesus Christ, whereby you can be restored to right relationship with Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. And He does not come into judgment, but has passed or crossed over. From death to life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful 
that you knew the shoddy craftsmanship of any bridge we might try to construct. You knew that our efforts are doomed to fail. We are polluted by sin, wreaked havoc on our mind and our hearts and our wills, our emotions, our bodies. We bear its marks day in and day out. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot make excuses for ourselves. We are all guilty as charged before you, the holy God. But God, thank you that you are not only holy and righteous, but also loving and gracious and merciful. Thank you for building a bridge where we were unable to do so. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that his workmanship is perfect. And that bridge will bear safely across all those who trust in him. I pray even in these moments, Heavenly Father, that you would draw men unto your son. Holy Spirit, work on hearts and minds. Convict men of sin. Convict them of their depravity. Help them see their deepest need. Lord, do not allow them to find comfort in thoughts that the devil would love to plant, that we can put this decision off, that we can deal with Jesus at a later time. There is no assurance of a latter time. Please press that upon them as well. Bring them to a place of urgency. And do this, Father, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.